This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Kaniokahage Nation in Chachage, also known as Montreal, Quebec, the original lands of many First Nations, including the Kaniokahage of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Huron-Wendat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabe. When we engage with and exist in digital spaces like this one right now, it's really important to think about the implications of the forces of colonialism that played such a huge part in shaping this kind of technology. The roots of so much of today's technology stem from colonial motives of surveillance and militarization and control. Understanding the ways in which technology isn't neutral and is in fact entrenched in systems of colonization is a really important process that we all should engage with in order to reflect on our own positionality in digital spaces. To learn what land you're on, go to native-land.ca. It's been a minute. I am so happy to be back, feeling super excited about this new year, and also just stoked to start recording again because I feel like it's been about a month or so since I released an episode. I took a much needed break, which was so good, so, so lovely, and I feel restful, I feel energized, and I'm feeling so ready to dive into today's topic. I feel like it's a goodie to start the new year with. We're going to be talking about gender and femininity and conditioning and unpacking all of the baggage that comes with growing up as a femme person. So without further ado, let's just get right into it. I feel like there's been lots of little things that have been sprinkled throughout my life over the past couple of weeks that have just been like hinting that I need to do an episode on this because I think I've touched on this quite a bit in my past episodes on gender and about, you know, like the complexities of growing up in certain bodies and what this means for our own understanding of our identity and our gender and our way that we see ourselves. But I kind of just wanted to unpack a bunch of these ideas in one place. So that's what this episode is going to be, pretty much. It's just me trying to wrap my head around certain ideas all around conditioned gender performance and ideas of femininity, especially. I'm going to be talking about a lot of the things that I've internalized because of all this gender conditioning and the stuff that I'm sort of like taking a step back and looking at more critically as of late um, as I'm going through my own little process of figuring out who the fuck I am and what the fuck my gender means. Um, And so I hope that it serves as some kind of helpful reflection space of curiosity for whoever is listening to this. I'm going to do a little deep dive into desirability and how central desire and the idea of being desired is to growing up and shaping an identity and shaping an understanding of gender. Talking from my own perspective of someone who grew up with a lot of ideas about what it meant to be desirable and what it meant to have value and how equated that became with traditional ideas of femininity and what that meant for how I approached relationships and how I saw myself and 
I think so much of it is all tangled up together that I don't know how clear it will be in this kind of unwrapping of ideas that I'm trying to do right now, but I'm going to do my best and I hope that you stay on track as best you can. And if anything was unclear, then feel free to reach out and I, I will try my best to untangle things in a somewhat concise way. I just want to talk about femininity very generally and my own experience of growing up with ideas about femininity and how shaped they were, how completely molded they were by patriarchal ideas of what it means to be a quote-unquote woman. And in my notes here, I just wrote, understanding femininity as defined by patriarchy fucks a girl up all caps. It's hard to really understand what femininity means, what the actual definition is, when so much of our learned conditioning of what we think it is, is rooted in what we think men are going to find desirable. It's all tangled up in these ideas of being attractive, about a certain body type, about being passive, about being polite, about always making space for other people and never taking up too much space yourself. So much of these ideas are tangled up in one another that it becomes unclear, it becomes really fuzzy what it actually means for all of us individually, what it means to be feminine. And I think that it's different for every person. I think that there's commonalities and I think that that's the beauty of human connection about universal experiences tied to gender and tied to identity but gender is also such an individual thing it's such a specific experience that you can't generalize that you can't give one big definition to and have it be a one-size-fits-all because it's so much more complex than that and it's so much more complicated and full of beautiful intricate details and messy huge blobs of confusion that I don't think any of us can really name or define because they're all so particularly unique and I think that that's what's so incredible about this experience of being a person. But then there's also experiences that are very intricately linked to gender identity that we can all sort of relate to one another over. I'm thinking about connections between women. I'm thinking about connections between queer people, which doesn't have to do with gender all the time, but often it does. Connections between men. All of these connections that are made possible because of so many common and universal experiences that we share with other people on the basis of our gender performance and how that shapes our experience in the world and how people see us and how we feel, how we present ourselves, the harassments we're subjected to, the complexities of navigating this world, occupying a specific body. And speaking from my experience growing up as a girl, growing up into a very feminine person, a lot of my identity was very much shaped around what men find desirable, about how I thought I was going to be perceived by men, because that was the sort of center of the pinnacle of desire, the the sort of like gold standard that you wanted to get to. And this was fed to me through media and people in my life telling me how to dress and how to have sex and the importance of being polite and never making a man feel attacked. 
And like we're we're taught that the worst thing we can be as girls is to be rude. So we run around pleasing everybody and sacrificing our desires and shrinking ourselves into these hollow shells of our real essence so that the boys and the men around us feel more comfortable and don't feel threatened as though if our existence as more than this hollow shell is somehow a threat to mankind which i mean maybe it is i don't know (laughs) i was reading this post earlier today that somebody shared um And it says, funny that feminine energy has been linked to being submissive because to be honest, there's never a time I feel more feminine than when I'm telling the men around me what to do. And I think for me anyway, I think that maybe that feeling of connection to femininity in those kinds of moments is because of how much time I spent in my life being passive and letting people talk over me so that now when I assert myself and now when I'm clear about my opinions and when I stand up for myself, I feel feminine as fuck because it's like, yeah, this is this is what I was suppressing all of those years because that's what I thought I had to do. It's like you make this little connection to this other part of yourself that remembers what it felt like to be submissive and to be passive because that's what you thought you had to do. So I think that's an important component of it for me is that little connection to past me that really didn't know how to name these things and really didn't know that these things were even going on. She knew that maybe something was off, but didn't necessarily know exactly what it was. And thinking about all of this for me also brings up a lot about my relationship to my queerness and how that has shifted um, since growing up and since going through all of these other experiences having to do with gender and identity and sexuality. I think that it's all, again, so intertwined. And I think that queer desire has taught me a lot about the conditioning of gender and sex that I've been subjected to, who I think I should be constructing my whole identity around male desire and being seen as sexy and hot and beautiful through the male gaze at all times. And I think that being loved by a woman and embracing opportunity for queer connection, especially with queer femmes, has taught and continues to teach me so many things about who I am beyond my internalized male gaze. Embracing queer desire and queer embodiment has been probably the biggest tool of realization and expansion of myself as a femme person. And I think that my experience with queer desire continues to teach me about this whole construction of my identity, especially my sexual and my gender identity, and how rooted this construction of my identity is in heteropatriarchal ideals of femininity and of being passive and of being polite and nice and pretty. Defining femininity by its relation to masculinity and quote-unquote male desire does nothing but create rigidity in how we understand ourselves as people. And it just makes ourselves into these weird, unrecognizable caricatures of who we think we have to be. 
It makes us into the cool girl. It makes us into the not like other girls girl. It makes us into the Madonna, the whore, whatever. I swear there is a caricature for every type of woman walking around this world that is shaping her identity based on what she thinks men want and what she thinks men desire. All of these caricatures, all of these shells of who we really are as feminine people just keep us in the box that the patriarchy patriarchy wants us to stay in because if we stay in these caricatures in these little boxes that are in no way big enough to hold all of our expansive everything then the world can keep on functioning the way that the patriarchy wants it to then there's no room for exploring gender and for embracing queer identity and rejecting these stupid gender roles that we keep being fed throughout our lives I also just quickly want to revisit some of the things that I just brought up with the cool girl and the not like other girls girl. I recently watched a video by The Take, which is one of my favorite YouTube channels. They do really, really wonderful video essays about kind of everything. <laughs> I feel like I can't really pinpoint um, specific a specific theme that they tend to go with, but they analyze a lot of media and tropes and um the more like quote-unquote problematic aspects of what we're fed through media and really great channel it is a big source of inspiration for me for sure I get a lot of my ideas from some of the stuff that they talk about and I recently was watching a video that they just released a little while ago about the pick me girl which is kind of a new-ish trope that has risen as of late I don't know really when it started Um, but I'm sure we've all heard of the pick me girl. There's lots of memes about it. It's quite similar to not like other girls girl, but there's some differentiations between the two. And I kind of just want to talk about it for a second because it's one of those tropes that has so many more layers to it that I don't think we give enough attention to. What I mean by that, I guess, is that it's easy for us to label certain people as the pick-me girl or the not-like-other-girls girl because it's once again separating that girl from us. It's pinning her against us. It's pinning us against her because she hates women and she thinks she's better than women and she always is looking for the attention of men and we're not like her. And so by naming the pick-me girl the pick-me girl we are also participating in that kind of culture that is labeling women, is categorizing women into these very, very rigid boxes defined in relation to other women, to better women. Do you see what I'm getting at here? It's like labeling these girls as pick-me girls or as cool girls or not like other girls' girls. We are also actively participating in the culture that shames women and that pins women against one another. When we call someone a pick-me girl, we're also inherently saying that we are somehow better than her because we don't vie for male's attention the same way or we don't feel the need to prove ourselves in certain ways. And that's kind of ironic because you are trying to prove something about yourself by labeling another girl a pick-me girl. So I think it's interesting to think about the ways in which we're actively a part of this thing that we're bashing and that we're saying is wrong and that is bad and we shouldn't want to be pick-me girls or cool girls or not like other girls girls, but we're still feeding into that. We're still feeding into that idea of categorizing women based on how much better or worse they are than other women. 
And a lot of this has to do with wanting to be perceived as valuable by men. That's the whole idea of the pick-me-girl is that she just wants the attention from all of the men and she wants to be seen as unique and different and she wants to be chosen. So in a way, we're all kind of the pick-me-girl when we call other women pick-me-girls. We're also in a way saying that we want to be chosen. We want to be seen as the better woman in this scenario. All of these tropes all of these categories that we put girls and put women into are rooted in our internalized misogyny and often outward misogyny that maybe we don't even see as sexism. Maybe we just see it as a fun meme. But when we look a little closer, we can see that we're still looking for validation from people, from people that will praise us for separating ourselves from the pick-me girls, from people that still subscribe to the idea that there is inherently good and bad types of women. So by engaging with this kind of discourse, we're just feeding into that universe of shaping feminine identities around what we think are going to be perceived as more desirable, as more valuable, as better than other characteristics or other behaviors that other people exhibit. The really interesting thing about all of these categories that we put ourselves into and that we put other girls and other women into is that we're doing this so that we're spared from sexism. We're doing this so that we don't have to suffer from the same judgments that people are giving to certain types of girls. We say we're not like other girls, not because we necessarily genuinely want the attention of boys, but because we fear being treated as feminine women, because we fear being treated as someone who's not just one of the boys because we fear being subjected to the immense misogyny that femme people are so often subjected to simply because of the way that they exhibit their femininity. These tropes only exist because gender segregation is such a normalized, popularized part of our culture. The ways that the media feeds us these ideas about how we need to perform our gender makes it so that we get so caught up in these ideas that we forget if we actually even want to be participating in this kind of performance. But we keep doing it because we're scared what will happen if we stop. Another point that I really want to bring up about these categories, these tropes that girls and women get put into, the pick-me-girl, the cool girl, the not-like-other-girls girl, I think that it's important that we don't vilify that because it's really not the fault of those girls for thinking that way. Speaking as someone who's very much a former <laughs> not-like-other-girls girl, I definitely was really hard on myself for a long time after realizing that that was all of my internalized misogyny presenting itself in really not good ways. And I don't know how productive it is to shame women for being in those phases of their life because it ultimately isn't their fault. And by saying that, I'm not saying that these people shouldn't be held accountable for the stuff that they said or did during these times of their lives. But I do want to emphasize that the only reason that people go through these things, that people see themselves in this kind of light, that feel like they need to separate themselves from other people, from other girls, is because of the idea that there is inherently a good and a bad way to be a certain gender. 
And it also puts all the responsibility on the person who's going through that and not the society that has made them into that. I think by vilifying these types of people and not having empathy for them is also part of the problem. Like I was saying before, it often contributes to that culture of mocking other women and really just feeds into that us versus them narrative. The pressure to perform femininity in such a specific way and also the pressure to reject femininity in certain ways by saying that you're not like other girls is so damaging to our own collective understanding of what it means to be feminine, of what it means to experience life as a femme person. And I think it makes it hard for people to really understand who they are and what their gender is outside of all of these conditionings. Who are we outside of these boxes? Who are we outside of the male gaze? Who are we outside of our own perception of ourselves that's so tangled up in internalized misogyny that we might not even recognize our own reflection? Whether you identify with the pick-me label or feel as though you've already gone through it or maybe you've called someone else a pick-me girl, I think that we should all think about the ways that we've actively participated in this culture that is so obsessed with pinning women against each other. Whether we don't want to be seen like other girls or we're mocking a girl for being a not like other girls girl, we have to think about what we're reproducing when we say these things. What kind of implications do these behaviors carry when we think about our relationship to our own gender and our relationships to other women, to other girls, to other non-binary people, to people figuring out what the fuck gender even means? What does it mean to be so segregated in our ideas of what it means to be feminine? And how can we be more inclusive? How can we unlearn and redefine femininity in a way that allows for growth and expansion and freedom to change definitions? I think maybe a fun takeaway that we could do this week is to watch an early 2000s movie that we really loved and really identified with when we were growing up and try to name the different tropes that are being reproduced in the movie. Or even if there's not a specific trope, try to find the ways that women are being pinned against each other, whether it's in overt dialogue or whether it's more subtle, whether it's the way that the narrator is being represented. Try to find some of the details in the movie that are reproducing these ideas about femininity. I've got a couple suggestions if you're blanking on ideas for movies to watch. Mean Girls was the first one to pop into my head because I feel like this one you could do a whole essay on really It's got a lot of commentary on gender and about female relationships and about not like other girls, pick me kind of vibes. And it's also definitely questionable. Like I wouldn't go to this movie for answers about gender, but it would be fun to watch and it would be fun to kind of look for those things that are being reproduced in the movie. Another one that is interesting in its depiction of women against women is Legally Blonde. I think that there's probably quite a bit there that you could look for. Uh, I also thought of The Princess Diaries, which is, you know, a goodie, like a total classic. Love Anne Hathaway, love Julie Andrews. But yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of that movie that I think could definitely be dissected and definitely be called out for certain things. Um, so that one could be fun. Another one that I was so obsessed with when I was growing up was She's the Man. 
And I, I literally, I want to do a whole episode on this, on this movie because, oh my God, there is so much going on. It is so chaotic. And I feel like it says quite a bit about a person if She's the Man was one of their favorite movies growing up. I feel like it's a definitely very gay movie in some ways, which, you know, I love. But there's also, yeah, there's some weird things being, um, being said in the movie for sure. (laughs) Like, I don't think that it's, again, necessarily the pinnacle of, understanding of gender and sexuality but it was kind of it was kind of saucy for its time I feel like um another one was how to lose a guy in 10 days that'll be my last recommendation because I feel like that one again you could do a whole essay on there's a lot of ideas about femininity and about constructing an identity around male desire so hopefully out of that list that kind of reminded you of the types of movies you watched growing up if you watched maybe one of those and you really loved one or if there's another one that you can think of I think it would just be funny if we all just watched one of those movies from our childhood and looked for those things that we maybe didn't see when we were younger I think that it could be fun could be really funny and also could remind us of the ways that we were being conditioned even as kids about ideas of gender so I hope to hear from some of you if any of you decide to watch one of those movies I would love to hear your reflections on it and in the meantime I think we're just gonna wrap it up with this episode it was kind of short but it was really fun I hope that it's a nice fun sort of reflection time for you starting the new year and I'm super excited to have you back next week so take care and we'll see you then